Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. If you're wondering why there is this uh, awkward chair stool behind me, it's because uh, yesterday afternoon I got hit with a pretty, let's just say, violent stomach bug. And uh, so if I seem a little less sprightly than normal, uh, that's because I feel awful. The chair there is, and just in case I need it, if I start going down, I'm going to lean on the chair, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to change. That's why that chair is there. Uh, if for some reason my uh, inside food decides to become outside food, I will run off the stage and try to remember to flip off my mic. That's my promise to you. <laughs> I'll do the best that I can. Uh, it's uh, weekends like this where I'm reminded how dumb the name it and claim it word of faith TBN guys are. They're the worst. You will get sick no matter how much faith you have. So uh, with that in mind, let me open with a word of prayer before we get into this text. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your grace. Uh, I thank you for even in uh, times like these where I don't feel well, where it's a reminder of how dependent we are on you, uh, that not only do you give us life and breath and everything, but as the Scriptures would say, in you we live and move and have our being. Should you withdraw your hand, we would just cease to be. We are that dependent on you, not only for life, but for you even keeping us in existence. And so we thank you for your grace. Uh, I pray for grace as I uh, try to work through this text uh, that you would be with me. So we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have got a Bible, we'll be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. We're going to work through three verses today, and I want to start with an opening illustration. So, when I was in high school, I was taking this math class, okay, and I, I don't really like math. I used to like math when I was a little kid, but when they started mixing the letters and numbers together, it became less fun. And so, I was taking this uh, math class in high school, and I was just sitting there in the middle of the class, and the teacher's teaching, she's explaining some sort of confusing thing about triangles, which again, I thought were simple when I was a kid, but triangles become very complex as you get older. And uh, she stops right in the middle of her lesson, and she looks at me, and just, just in front of the class, goes, Zach, have you ever broken your nose? Now, I don't know if that was like a threat. I wasn't doing anything to make her say that. It's like if my nose was way over on my cheek, I could understand her asking that. If I was doing one of those weird nose whistle things, you know what I'm talking about? If I was just sitting in class doing that, then I could understand her asking. But she just stops in the middle of class, and she's like, Zach, have you ever broken your nose? And I'm like, nope. And then she tried to back out of it. She's like, oh, uh, I wasn't trying to insult you that you look like Owen Wilson with your nasty nose, but instead, uh, I was just trying to say that I broke my nose, and maybe we had this in common, and she starts trying to back out of it, okay? Now, that is known in logic as an enthymeme. Okay? An enthymeme is where you imply something, it's this unstated premise, but you don't say it explicitly. Did she explicitly say that my nose was crooked? No. And by the way, it's not. Okay? So I've just got this insecurity now because of that. That wasn't the time to bring it up. Maybe pull me aside in the hall. Anyway, that's called an enthymeme. You've got this implied premise. You don't say it explicitly. She didn't say, Zach, your nose looks gross, but she implied that, right? Or imagine that uh, I'm back in college before I met my wife, Katie, and I'm dating some girl, and she wants to break up with me, which was often the case. And so she says something like, Zach, I think we need to break up. And I say, why? She says, well, you're not really my type. And I say, well, what's your type? And she says, handsome. <laughs> That's an infamy. She didn't explicitly call me ugly, but she implied it, all right? It was implied by this. It's because of this kind of thinking that you get a lot of famous quotes where certain things are implied. So Mark Twain once said, giving up smoking is easy. I've done it hundreds of times. Winston Churchill has that great phrase where he says, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others, all right? 
And so what happens is there are all these times where certain things are implied. They're not made explicit, but they're just kind of implied, and that's called an enthymeme. Now, the reason I tell you about that is when it comes to our Christian life, when it comes to growing in holiness, when it comes to our sanctification, we kind of treat the Holy Spirit as just something that's implied, as kind of like an enthymeme, instead of realizing that He is the one doing the stuff. He is the one doing the sanctifying. We know that as Christians. Yes, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. Yes, He's sanctifying me. But we really have a tendency to kind of push Him in the background and just focus on me doing better and me living a better life and me trying to be more righteous. And so my hope in dealing with this text this morning is to make explicit what is implicit, okay? Is to bring out that enthymeme, if you will, and to try to talk about the the Spirit's power in our life to bring about righteousness, to bring about holiness, to bring about godliness, okay? Now, we're going to talk more about the Spirit uh, as we keep going through Romans 8 because He is a major figure, but I want to give you two helpful summaries of what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit because a lot of times we kind of treat Him like He's the uh, red-headed stepchild of the Trinity, you know, and uh, we don't want to do that. So I want to give you some helpful uh, uh, summaries of this. The first one is, uh, comes from 381, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed says this, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Okay? Another one comes from the 39 Articles. This is a helpful statement of faith in Anglicanism in 1571. The Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, is of one substance, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son, very and eternal God. So what I want you to see here is as we work through this text, there's going to be a strong Trinitarianism. The Apostle Paul is a thoroughgoing monotheist. He's a Jew. He would have grown up possibly every day saying what's called the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? He would have said that, yet though he's a monotheist, somehow he sees the one God of Israel as being Trinitarian as being consisting of three distinct persons. So I want you to see the strong Trinitarian nature of this passage. He's going to mention the Father. He's going to mention the Son. He's going to mention the Spirit. He's going to do all these kind of things. Why he's still just talking about the one God, okay? So I want you to see that in this passage. So with that in mind, let's get into verse 9. I've broken it down into two sections here. Verse 9a, okay? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Here's what this means, ready? You Christians, unlike those who are in the flesh, are not under the control of the flesh, but under the control of the Holy Spirit since He lives within you, okay? Let's break this down word for word here. First of all, it says you. That you, by the way, in Greek here is plural. A great translation is y'all. You're welcome, Texas. You ever make a new translation, a Texan translation, put y'all. Y'all, meaning you Christians, in contrast to those that Jeff talked about last week who do not know Christ, in contrast to those who are lost, you Christians, the next word here is however, okay? There's a contrast being, being, being put forth here uh, to contrast the people Paul is talking about today versus who Paul was talking about last week in the sermon, okay? So let me, let me just recap something Jeff said that was really, really, really helpful. We have a tendency when we read Romans 8 when Romans 8 talks about the flesh and the spirit, for us to think that it's just cutting Christianity, just taking Christians and cutting us in half, okay? We think that there's a fleshly side of us. We think that there is a spiritual side of us. We're like 50% flesh, 50% spiritual, and these things are always at war with each other, and that's what Romans 8 is talking about. Now, listen, this is important. 
It is true that you will fight against the flesh. You will fight against the sinful brokenness in your life until you die, okay? You're free from the mastery of sin. You're free from it owning you, but you will not be free from the presence of sin until you die, okay? But look at me. This is important. That's just not what Romans 8 is talking about. Romans 8 is not talking about the one Christian with two different parts. When it talks about those in the flesh, it's talking about those that don't know Christ. And when it's talking about those in the Spirit, it's talking about those who, who have the Spirit, who are Christians. How do we know that? Look again at verse 9a. You, however, are not in the flesh. So obviously they can't be talking about different parts of us. It's saying the things that Jeff said last week, the things that the Apostle Paul went over in the text last week, those are true of lost people. Today he's talking about what it looks like to be a Christian, okay? You, however, are not in the flesh. What does that mean? Okay, let me give you a little pet peeve that I have. You ready? When people use the word literally, figuratively, okay? Most of the time when somebody says, this literally happened, what they mean is, I want to add emphasis to what I'm saying, so I'm going to use the word literally, although I really mean figuratively. That's literally how they use it, okay? So you'll hear somebody say something like, that was so funny, I literally died laughing. I'm like, how are you telling me this story if you literally died laughing, right? Or they'll say something like, I was so scared, I literally jumped out of my skin. I'm not talking to a skeleton right now. You didn't literally jump out of your skin, okay? When the Apostle Paul here talks about not being in the flesh, he's not meaning something like jumping out of your skin. He's not, mean, he's not saying, you're no longer human. Uh, you no longer have a body. That's not what he means. By flesh here, he means that broken, sinful identity that you used to have before you came to know Christ, okay? The Bible is not against what is physical. God makes everything good. The Bible is not against the body or something like this. We're not Gnostic. What the Bible is against is sin. It's the corruption that has happened. God made everything good. The reason things are messed up is because of corruption, because of sin, not because physical things are bad in and of themselves. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, okay? Now, I need to take some time to to unpack this a little bit. When this text says that you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, again, it's not talking about two parts of us. It's talking about two different ages. What do I mean by that? Before you become to know a Christian, you are under the mastery, you are under the realm of what the Bible calls this present evil age, the brokenness introduced into the world through Adam, sickness, sin, death, the devil owns you. When you become a Christian, you're shifted into a new age, an age where Christ is king, an age where your sins are forgiven, and these kind of things, okay? So this text is not talking about two different parts of us, it's talking about our identity. Let me unpack it further. I'm going to tell you something, this isn't in the Bible, but it should be. You ready? Texas is the best state, okay? Can I get an amen? Amen. Gosh, a lot of people from Alabama or something in here. I'm surprised you didn't. I'm proud to be a Texan. I was born in Texas. I uh, like uh, Texas. Texas has a lot of things to be proud of, and so I want to give you some of these facts I was looking up uh, earlier this week. Texas is the only state to have six flags fly over it and eight changes of government. It was the only state to join the U.S. by treaty instead of being annexed and was an independent nation for a while, the Republic of Texas. That's one of the reasons that Texas can fly their flag at the same height as the U.S. flag, which not every state can do, okay? Texas is massive. Everything is bigger in Texas, okay? You've heard this. The King Ranch is bigger than the state of Rhode Island, and El Paso is closer to California than it is to Dallas. If it were a country, it would be the 40th largest country in the world. Three of the top 10 largest cities in the U.S. are in Texas, okay? And... Texas is the biggest state. Now, wait, you're thinking to yourself, what about Alaska? Alaska doesn't count. Alaska's just Canadian Texas, right? 
So Texas is America's Texas, and then Alaska is Canadian Texas, right? If you think Alaska's right, when's the last time their professional football team beat the Dallas Cowboys? That's what I thought, because they don't have one, right? <laughs> Texas is also a very aggressive state. We're known for being very aggressive. We have 139 tornadoes per year. We're home to the worst natural disaster in U.S. history, which was that thing in Galveston in 1900. Uh, since the reinstitution of the death penalty in 1976, we have executed more people than anyone else uh, any other state. The next closest state has only executed a fourth of the amount that uh, Texas had, has. It's still a hanging offense to steal cattle in Texas, and Texans buy over one million guns a year. Oh, man. We invented Dell computers, Dr. Pepper, the handheld calculator, the frozen margarita machine, the microchip, Fritos, and the Bowie knife. John Wayne and Chuck Norris are honorary Texas Rangers. Okay? Now, when I see myself... I see myself, in a sense, under two spheres. I'm a Texan and an American, probably in that order, okay? I'm a Texan and an American, okay? Now, you have to realize, Texans, we have a lot of pride about our state. If you go up to West Virginia, they're not like, we should secede, that doesn't happen, okay? That's a Texan thing. I see myself as a Texan and an American, and because of that, I do Texan things and American things. When I vote for the governor, I'm doing a Texan thing. When I vote for the president, I'm doing an American thing. Okay? When I pay, you know, if I, if I buy something or try to elect somebody in Texas, I'm doing a Texas thing. If I'm trying to work for some sort of federal law or whatever, I'm doing a, a, na a nationwide thing, an American thing. So there's a sense in which I have two identities, a Texan and an American. You with me so far? Okay, now this is important, ready? That is not how the Apostle Paul is talking about the spirit in the flesh. He's not saying you're a citizen of the flesh and a citizen of righteousness or a citizen of the spirit. Let me now give you a different illustration. Let's say instead of being born in Texas, I had been born in North Korea, okay? And I didn't have freedom of speech. I didn't have freedom of religion. My family was killed in a concentration camp, and I came over to the United States, and I renounced my North Korean citizenship and became an American, and that's all I saw myself as, okay? Would there be times where I still forget what it's like to uh, ha not have freedom of speech? Yes. Would there still be times where I want to speak in Korean instead of English? Yes. But my identity has shifted to being just an American. That's a better illustration of what's going on in this text. Are there times we still sin? Yes. Is there still brokenness in our lives? Yes. But our primary identity is as somebody who knows Christ, who's someone who's in the Spirit, who has moved from that present evil age into the age to come. Yes, I still fight sin, but it is not my identity. That's important. You are not a sinner who sins if you're a Christian. You are a saint who sins. Okay? Lost people are sinners who sin. You as a Christian are a saint who sins. You still sin, but your identity, who you are in God's sight, is one who is righteous and perfect and clean, okay? Again, verse 9a, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. Look at this last clause. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let me ask you this question. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? No. Do you know Why? because you're already possessed by God, okay? When God saves you, He doesn't just forgive you of your sins and send you out on your merry way. He gives you the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to dwell inside of you, to sanctify you, to guide you, to convict you of sin, okay? The reason that the idea of demon possession is really scary is we don't like this idea that something could be controlling us that's evil. Well, what about something that controls us that's good, that's clean, that's perfect, that's pure, that's God Himself? Then all of a sudden, things become much more encouraging, not to mention the fact I don't like the phrase really demon-possessed. 
Uh, that's not actually what it says in the New Testament. In your English translation, if it says that there was a demon-possessed man, in Greek, it's just the Greek word demodzomai. It just means demonized. The reason I don't like the term demon-possessed is because it makes it sound like that person's wanting to follow Jesus, and a demon just jumps out of the bushes and makes them do things that they don't want, okay? There is a sense in which, when you're strongly demonized, you want to do that. By not submitting to Christ, by not following Jesus, you are saying that you still want to be plugged in the matrix, that you still want to uh, uh, still give your life in some sense to the evil one, okay? So a Christian cannot be possessed, but we can be oppressed. We can be spiritually attacked. The encouragement of this passage, though, is that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Can you be spiritually attacked as a Christian? Yes, but greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You don't need to fear. You don't need to worry. What do you need to do if you feel spiritually attacked? You don't need to get a crossbow and become blade. You simply need to submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's about the extent of what the Bible gives us when it comes to spiritual warfare, so avoid all the weirdos on TV. Verse 9b, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The him here, by the way, is Jesus, okay? The him here is Jesus. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now listen, this is really important. What is it that makes someone a Christian? If I were to come to you after service and not shake your hand so you don't get sick, but I were to stand at a distance and I were to say to you, are you a Christian? And you said, yes. And I said, why? What is it that makes you a Christian? The following things are the wrong answer, okay? Let me mention some things that do not make you a Christian. Praying a prayer, praying a prayer. The Bible never says, if thou shalt pray a prayer when you're six, God owes you salvation, okay? Walking an aisle. Maybe you walked an aisle down an altar call. Maybe you've been baptized, Okay? Being baptized is not what makes you a Christian. I've met a lot of people who've been baptized that are wicked, wicked, wicked. In the book of Acts, you even have that. A guy named Simon the Magician who's been uh, baptized, and the apostles say, you have nothing to do with our ministry. We don't know you, right? Or you have people like in Acts 10 who haven't been baptized yet, and they have the Spirit. They're already speaking in tongues and these kind of things. So getting baptized is not what makes you a Christian. Having Christian parents is not what makes you a Christian. As one of our elders, uh, Wade Catlin, often says that God has children but no grandchildren, okay? Growing up in church is not what makes you a Christian. I actually remember the first church where I had pastored, there was a little old lady, she was in her uh, late 70s, and in the middle of the Bible study, she stopped and she said, Zach, I've never repented and trusted in Christ. I just thought I was a Christian because I've been in church my whole life. We're like, that's great. Well, let me introduce you to the gospel. And we got to baptize her that next weekend, okay? Being a really good person, does not make you a Christian. Mentally adhering to correct doctrine does not make you a Christian. You know who has really good doctrine? The devil. You know who believes in the Trinity? The devil. You know who believes that Jesus died on a cross for the sins of humanity? The devil, right? James can even mention how there are those that have correct doctrine. You believe that God is one, so do the demons, and they shudder. Mentally adhering to correct doctrine does not make you a Christian. Identifying as a Christian does not make you a Christian. Trying really hard to live righteously. Yes, Zach, I know that there's grace, but God really wants me to do my part. Your part was sinning and getting lost. He will do all the rest. Thank you very much. What is it, according to 9b, that makes you a Christian? Let's read it again. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Here's what makes you a Christian. Ready? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again? Has your life changed? I don't care if you know the day that you got saved. I don't know the day I got saved, but there should be something in your life where you realize that you went from hating God to loving God, where you went from loving your sin to hating your sin. Do you love Christ? Do you hate your sin? 
Do you love the Scriptures? Do you love the people of God? Is your heart different than the unregenerate world? That and that alone is what makes you a Christian. Have you been born again? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Okay? Let me read you a bunch of passages on this. This is important. John 3, 7 through 8 says this, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's like the wind. The wind just blows around, and the same way the Spirit moves around and saves people, okay? John 14, 17, even the Spirit of truth, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Romans 5.5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or daughters, right, if you're a lady. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Have you been born again? Do you have the Spirit? Do you love Christ? Are your highest affections for Christ? Yes, sometimes your highest affections will be for sin, but your primary highest affections, are they for Christ? Have you been born again? Listen, Christianity is not like other religions. Christianity is something that God has to do to you. Salvation is not something you go do. In Christianity, it's something that God does to you. Has God wrecked your life? Has he transformed you? Has he done something in your heart? That's different than other religions. If you want to be Jewish, you can become circumcised and you can join a synagogue and follow the Mosaic law and you can be Jewish. If you want to become a Muslim, what you say is that there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You say that two times in front of another Muslim and you're a Muslim. In Christianity, though, it's different. In Christianity, salvation is something God does to you. Has that happened? Because if it has, great. If it hasn't, listen, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day to repent and ask Jesus to save you, and he will. He will not cast away anyone who comes to him, according to John 6. Let's look at this again. 9b. Anyone who does not have… What's the next phrase there? Shout it out loud. The Spirit of Christ. Why does it say the Spirit of Christ? Is that different than the Holy Spirit? Is that the same? Why does he say Spirit of Christ? Why didn't he just say Holy Spirit? Well, in two minutes, let me summarize what we believe about God and the Trinity. You ready? The God of the Bible is radically different than you and I, okay? If you're thinking of God as like a big man on a cloud with a beard, you are committing mental idolatry, okay? God is holy other. He's infinite. Think about this. Go to the beach in Galveston. Try not to step on a syringe, but go to the beach in Galveston. Count all the pieces of sand and then go to Florida and count all the pieces of sand on the beach, and then go to Hawaii and count all the pieces of sand on the beach, and do that all over the world. And whatever number you get, then multiply that number by that same power, and you are not one grain of sand closer to infinity than when you began, and God is like that, okay? One of the things you need to know about God is that God is Trinitarian. His nature is different than ours. I'm just one being and one person. God is one being, but somehow three persons. There's only one God, 
one substance, one essence, one being. God has one mind, one will, one. Yet, God is somehow three distinct persons, and each person is truly and fully God. Jesus isn't just a third of God. He's not God's arm. The Spirit is not just a third of God, like God's knee. He's God. Whatever it means to be God, that's true of the Son. Whatever it means to be God, that's true of the Spirit. That is the Trinity. If you say to, you, if you say to me, Zach, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. You can't understand God fully in any of his attributes. You can't understand him fully. He's different than us. He's infinite. He's omnipresent. He's all-powerful. He's Trinitarian. At some point, you have to realize that if you could understand everything about God's Trinitarian nature, you would be him. Your God would be limited because you as a fallible human that chokes on your own spit and trips over your own feet could fully comprehend the God of the universe. You can know God truly, but not fully. You can apprehend, but you cannot comprehend him. So with that in mind, the Apostle Paul here is not saying that the Son is the same as the Spirit. Because God is a trinity, when God does things, all the members of the trinity are involved. Think back to creation. You have God the Father speaking His Word, which the Bible says is Jesus, and then you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. Or think in salvation. The Father sends the Son, the Son dies on our behalf, and the Spirit applies that to us. When God acts, because He is a trinity, He does things in a trinitarian way. Yes, it's true that certain acts culminate on certain members of the trinity. Jesus dies on the cross, not the Father. But you need to realize that that plan of salvation is all done by our one trinitarian God. And so with that in mind, let me give you a great quote from a New Testament scholar named Douglas Moo. He says this, What this means is not that Christ and the Spirit are equated or interchangeable, but that Christ and the Spirit are so closely related in communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously, okay? What he's saying here is we're not saying that, uh, we're not modalists. We don't think that the Son is the Spirit. What we're saying is because God is a trinity, the Son is distinct from the Spirit, yet they share a common nature, yet they share, uh, they are one being, the one being of God. To summarize the Trinity in the words of St. Augustine, he does it in seven phrases. There's only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. There you go. Seven phrases that teach what we believe about the Trinity. Okay? Verse 10. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Here's what you're going to see in verse 10. One of the things we talk about a lot at Parkway is we talk about how in the New Testament there is what is, there's this tension that we call the already not yet, okay? Salvation is already, I'm already justified, I'm already forgiven, my sins have already been washed away, but it's also not yet. I'm still being saved. I'm waiting for resurrection. It's already and not yet. The end times is already and not yet. Have we seen these things that were promised to happen at the end already? Yes, Jesus has been raised, the Spirit's been given, people's sins are being washed away, etc. But do people still get sick and are demonically oppressed and these kind of things? Yes, okay? It's already and it's not yet. So the Christian stands between two worlds. On one foot, we stand within the world of Adam, marked by the brokenness of the fall, marked by things like sin and death and wickedness and these kind of things. But with our other foot, we stand in the age to come, okay? The age to come, marked by Christ and resurrection and life and forgiveness. We live as Christians within the overlap of the ages. You've got the present evil age, all the bad stuff that happens after the fall. And then you've got the age to come, which is all the good stuff where the wolf lies down with the lamb. Those ages have overlapped, and that is the age in which 
we live. And you see that tension here in verse 10. You see that there's something here about death, but also something about life. But let's see what this means. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. Okay, let me explain this. You, as a Christian, even though you're loved and accepted and forgiven by God, you will die. Your body is still broken. One day it will be resurrected unto new life, but it is still broken, and you will still die. Now, let me ask you this question. Why do Christians still die if our punishment for sin has already been taken away? Doesn't death come as the result of sin? On the day you eat of this, you will die. The wages of sin is death. Why then do Christians die if our punishment has already been poured out on Christ? There's none left for us, okay? Now listen, this is important. Christians don't die because you're being punished for your personal sin by God. All God's wrath has been poured out on Christ. There's none left for you. Christians don't die because God is still mad at you. The reason we as Christians will still die physically is for two reasons. Number one, we still live in a broken world. And number two, it's the way that God continues our sanctification. The last step in our sanctification is death. In fact, the older you get, the more you will think about death, and the more you will think about death, the more you have to go back to Christ, the more you have to go back to the cross, the more you have to lean on God to help protect you from that fear, to help protect you from that fear. So I'll give you an example. I love bubble gum, okay? Not the gross, like, here's a little minty chiclet you put in, and it kind of freshens your breath, but you can't blow a bubble. That's gross. What I like is like hubba bubba, bubble yum. I like blowing a huge bubble. It pops all over my beard. It takes three days to get it out. That's what I like. It tastes like watermelon or grape. It's amazing. When I was a kid, I used to get uh, Big League Chew. You guys know what Big League Chew is? It's basically where you give a little kid a satchel of gum, and they tear it open, and you just stuff it in your mouth, and it's like running down your chin, your spit is, you're doing this thing, right? It's running down, you, you, there's just so much. When you go to spit it out in a trash can, it looks like a snake regurgitating an egg. It's like, and you spit it out in the trash can, okay? Or bubble tape. Whoever thought it was a good idea to give a little kid six feet of gum at once is a terrible, terrible person, okay? But I like bubble gum. Now, here's the thing. Did you know that in Singapore, bubble gum is illegal? You cannot chew or import bubblegum to Singapore, okay? Why? Well, when bubblegum first came out and everybody was eating a bunch of gum, they were just throwing it everywhere, throwing it on the street, putting it on the handrails, and so the government had a bit of an overreaction and made all bubblegum illegal in Singapore, okay? Now, if I go to Singapore today and I get checked out by customs, they're going to throw all that stuff in the trash because when I travel, I just carry tons and tons of bubblegum. I don't really. That'd be weird. Uh, but let's say I go to Singapore today. Will I be able to chew gum there? I won't. Was that law, though, and, and, and me being under those laws of Singapore, was that because of me? No, it's because I'm in Singapore. Other things got messed up, and because I'm in this broken system now, I can't chew bubble gum. But not, that law wasn't made, though, for me, Zach Lee. It was made from other things. It's the same way with death. You're not dying as a Christian for your own individual sins. God's already paid for those. The reason that you die today is because you still live within a broken world. You still live in Singapore, if you want to say it that way, Okay. Verse 10 again, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, that means your body is still corrupted and one day will physically die. Look at the contrast. The spirit is life because of righteousness. What does that mean? What that means is the because of righteousness refers to what Christ has done. Because Christ has earned salvation on your behalf by living the life you should have lived and taking the death you deserved, because Christ has done that, the spirit will one day resurrect you, okay? 
What I think you have in mind here when the Apostle Paul is writing this part of Romans, I think he's thinking back to Ezekiel 37. I want to read you a section from Ezekiel 37. The Apostle Paul would have known Ezekiel very well. Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14 says this, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Now look at this next part. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Okay? This is a famous text in Ezekiel known as the Valley of Dry Bones. And basically what God is doing is he is showing that through his spirit, he's not done in the Old Testament with Israel. But through his spirit, one day he will give his people life both spiritually and physically. That is probably in the back of Paul's mind as he is using this phrase here in verse 10. He's saying this, okay, just as a summary. What then does verse 10 mean? He's saying, though you're still corrupted by sin to some extent, and though you will still die, take heart because the spirit has already given you spiritual life and will one day raise you up physically as well. You will be bodily resurrected as Christ was. Tom Schreiner, another New Testament scholar, summarizes the verse this way. Believers will be raised from the dead through the life-giving spirit on the basis of the saving righteousness of God. That's what Christ purchased, even though presently their bodies are dead because of sin. Ready? Now listen. You are going to die. Welcome to Parkway, where we always just give you truth, whether you want to hear it or not. It's going to happen. Now, if Christ comes back first... That would be the only thing that would change that, but you are going to die if he tarries. It's not an if, it is a when, okay? Death is scary. That's why people make horror movies and stuff about death. How scary would a horror movie be if no one could die? Some psycho would pop out of the closet and stab you, the knife would bend, and you'd just run away or something. It wouldn't be a good movie. But for the Christian, but for the Christian, death is a little less scary because we have resurrected life to look forward to. Everyone will be raised, the lost to everlasting condemnation, but the righteous to everlasting life. So here's what that means. You are going to die. So if you don't know Christ, you should know Him before that day comes, okay? And as that day approaches, you don't need to worry. You don't need to be fearful. You don't need to have panic attacks because for you, death is temporary. Death does not have the final say. Death is a long nap while you rest with Jesus waiting for resurrection for the Christian. That's the hope that verse 10 is trying to give. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, okay? Here's what this text means. God raised Jesus from the dead bodily, and if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he will one day resurrect you bodily by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, look again in verse 11 and answer this question for me. Who, which member of the Trinity raises Jesus. Look at it. Look at verse 11. Hmm. Biblically, the answer is all three members are involved in the Trinity, like we just talked about. The Father raises Christ. The Son, Jesus says that I have the authority to lay down my life and take it back up again. And the Spirit. And so if you're saying it's kind of muddled, it's supposed to be. Don't separate. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who is Trinity, okay? 
And so you see that his language here is if the spirit of him, that's the father, raised Jesus from the dead, then he talks about the spirit giving life to Christ. Elsewhere, the Bible's going to talk about Christ raising up his own life. You're meant to see that Trinitarianness in the resurrection of Christ, okay? Another thing I want you to see, do you see the word there, mortal? Dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Mortal there means something like sin-scarred, your broken, corruptible bodies, okay? You need to know that the eternal state is bodily. You're going to be resurrected like Christ was physically, bodily. He's eating fish and telling Thomas to put his fingers in his hand holes, okay? Bodily. He doesn't just become like a ghost or something and float up. So where it says mortal here, the idea is your body is corrupted by sin. One day you will die. The corruption will be done. You'll be resurrected physically, but in a new body, a body that is still you, still physical, but not marked by the effects of the fall, okay? Not marked by the effects of the fall. What verse 11 is trying to do is it's trying to let you see the Spirit's work throughout redemptive history. It was God who breathed His breath, His Spirit, into Adam to make Adam a living being. It's the Spirit who resurrects Christ, and one day it's the Spirit who will resurrect you as well, who will resurrect you as well, okay? What I want you to see here is this. Should you be reading your Bible? Yes. Should you be praying? Yes. Should you be humbling yourself? Does God oppose the proud but give grace to the humble? Yes. Should you be serving people? Yes. But the emphasis here on Romans 8 is this. Are you ready? Here's here's the big takeaway for today. It's the Holy Spirit who does the sanctifying. It's the Holy Spirit who's the active agent in transforming your life. Do you believe that? Are you a Christian just trying to do the best you can, or do you realize you've died, and now you're in Christ, and it's the Spirit that works in you, and you've yielded yourself to the Spirit? The Protestant reformer Martin Luther says this, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me by His gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. In the same way, He calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and preserves it in union with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, He daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers, and He will raise up me and all the dead at the last day, and He will grant eternal life to me and to all who believe in Christ. God is the one who does the stuff. God is the the active agent in these things, okay? You're the passive agent. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a little homework for this week. You ready? I'm not going to ask you about it. It's not a grade. Here's what I want you to do, though. Sometime this week, what I want you to do at night, once you're at home, after the kids are in bed, what I want you to do is find just a few minutes where you can just get alone where it's quiet. And I want you to, if you're physically able, if you're physically unable, that's okay, but if you're physically able, I want you to literally get down on your face, and I want you to ask God to move in your life. I want you to repent of any known sins that you have, and I want you to confess your dependence upon Christ, that you can't do it. You can't fix you. you. I want you to confess your dependence on it. I want you to get on your face and be like, Spirit, please move in my heart. Please transform me. I'm tired of dealing with this sin. I'm tired of dealing with this struggle. I'm trying to, tired of trying to do it on my own. And what I want you to do is I want you to confess your absolute dependence upon Christ because you are dependent on Him whether you know it or not is irrelevant. And so would you do that sometime this week? Find time just to repent of any known sin in your life and just to submit and ask God for help. Confess your dependence on Him. Repent where you've been trying to uh, make yourself better, where, and you've been trying to earn His favor, and instead, rest in His grace. Rest in His grace. Let's pray as those who are volunteering to serve communion come forward to distribute the elements.
Almighty God, we thank you for this text. We thank you that uh, you uh, love us and you care for us. We thank you that you've given us the Spirit to those that know Christ. And so I pray right now that if there's somebody in here that doesn't know Christ, somebody in here that thinks that being a Christian means they're trying to be a good person and doing the best that they can, that they would repent of the sin of self-righteousness and self-atonement and instead lean only on the cross. So we thank you for this. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We ask that you bless this time as we transition into communion. It's in Christ's name. Amen.